mild hypercapnia may result in better outcomes in the post-arrest patient. The objective here is to compare the standard of care alone. We really don't have anything similar for cardiac arrest. Overall, we want to avoid cerebral hypoperfusion. Should we be targeting mild hypercapnia or keep going with normal capnia? It was kind of impossible to do that. They're looking for speed, right? Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I hope all of you are doing well. We're excited for this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. We are going to hit actually two articles. We've never talked about two articles in a podcast, but they both deal with select aspects of our care of the patient that we resuscitate from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So some good post-arrest care articles. But before we dive deep into to the education and review of these articles, let me bring in my stellar co-host, as always here on CCPEM, Dr. Rob Rodriguez, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. John Greenwood. Gentlemen, I hope that you are doing well. We have made the turn, I think, towards fall here in North America, so that means for many of us, well, kids are back in school, but it also means, hopefully, a little relief from the summer heat that has been a little bit oppressive at least in the mid-Atlantic and maybe other areas of the United States throughout these past several weeks. So let me, John, turn to you. I'm going to ask, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. I mean, I think as the season turns, so do our early residents, interns and residents that are in the emergency department we get to work with. They're picking up a few things and a lot of good teaching points over the past few months, I can tell you that. Definitely some second looks on patients where learning opportunities all around. So it's been a lot of fun. Sounds awesome. Well, Peter, how are things in your neck of the woods? So things are still pretty steamy in New Orleans. It rained this week for the first time in about two weeks, which for us is pretty startling, but very nice. Fewer heat-related illnesses presenting at this point. So we count those blessings and those wins. Outstanding. And turning our attention all the way on the West Coast, Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, we're doing great out here in California. We are entering the hotter part of our year. We tend to get hotter toward the end of August, September, and October, but it's all great here, doing well. All right. Well, my thanks to all of you once again for joining us here on CCPEM. We're going to have a lot of fun in this particular discussion and bring out, I think, a lot of teaching points or educational points. And to get us started, we're going to start with the first article that was published a few weeks ago online in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the lead author is Dr. Eastwood. And this is the TAME study. This was entitled Mild Hypercapnia or Normocapnia After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And in essence, the premise for this study is that I think we all know that the leading cause of death in patients that we resuscitate from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And with respect to that, I think many of us would probably agree that poor cerebral perfusion or cerebral hypoperfusion is likely to contribute to worsen neurologic outcome, whether that be decreased O2 delivery, it may exacerbate existing cerebral damage that may have occurred with the arrest or during the resuscitation. But overall, we want to avoid cerebral hypoperfusion. Now, as many of you know, the arterial CO2 concentration, well, that's a major physiologic regulator of cerebral vascular tone. And we also know that hypercapnia 
is essentially a little bit of a vasodilator and may increase cerebral blood flow. And while cerebral autoregulation is disrupted in the post-arrest patient, the cerebral vasculature does maintain its reactivity to arterial CO2 concentrations. Now, current guidelines recommend that we target normocapnia, so normal arterial CO2 levels in the post-arrest patient. And we've talked about that here on the podcast before. But if we think about it, some have actually questioned, well, normocapnia may not be sufficient. And what maybe we should shoot for is mild hypercapnia to increase or augment cerebral blood flow to avoid worsening neurologic injury or potentially poor neurologic outcome. And over the past few years, there have been a few observational studies and one, well, so-so done RCT that actually have suggested that mild hypercapnia may result in better outcomes in the post-arrest patient. But as we stand here today, as we're listening to this podcast, as we're discussing this podcast, the optimal or most effective arterial CO2 concentration for adults that remain comatose after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, well, that remains uncertain. So, John, let me turn to you. What was the objective of the TAME study? And, and take us through the basics, the important highlights of the study itself. Yeah, Mike, that's a great lead-in and certainly a clinical question of importance here in the post-arrest patient. So the basic objective here was to test the hypothesis that targeted mild hypercapnia would improve neurologic outcomes at six months compared to targeted normocapnia in adults who obtained ROSC after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So a couple point things here. They're looking at hypercapnia versus normocapnia, and these are in patients that obtain ROSC from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, this was a international investigator-initiated open-label trial that included a patient group that we're all fairly familiar with. These are adult patients who obtained ROSC for at least 20 minutes from cardiac arrest. Now, they did exclude patients who had prolonged screening time from ROSC. So these are patients who might have received care for up to over 180 minutes or close to three hours. They didn't want to include those patients. They're really focusing on that early window, unwitnessed arrest, and those with limitations of care. So those are patients who oftentimes we don't know the downtime for what the underlying causes could likely sustain or at high risk of severe neurologic injury. So tried to keep those patients out of the trial. So they randomized patients one-to-one, and the physicians who were taking care of these patients were aware of the interventional assignment. And so when they assigned the patients, they assigned them to hypercapnia. And so that was a pretty tight range of 50 to 55 millimeters of mercury, and compared that to normocapnia, which was a little bit wider of 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury. Now, these patients were heavily sedated, so their RAS target was minus four, and they targeted the PCO2 based on ABGs and then used end-tidal CO2 to guide it also. So at 96 hours, they did neuroprognostication and they chose the primary outcome being favorable neurologic outcome. And this was a Glasgow outcome scale extended score of five to eight. And that was at six months. So their initial and then their long-term at six months. They also looked at death within six months and poor functional outcome at that time period as well, using a modified Rankin score. They did look at a few subgroups. That was the elderly. Oh, I wouldn't want to say elderly. I'm saying I would probably say the older individuals over 65 years of age or younger individuals less than 65, time from arrest to ROSC and presence or absence of circulatory shock on admission. 
Thanks, John. That was outstanding. You've set the table perfectly for us. Rob, I'm going to turn to you for the results of the TAME study. Which one out? Should we be targeting mild hypercapnia or keep going with normal capnia? Yeah, Mike. So they enrolled 1,700 patients from 63 ICUs in the 17 countries involved in this study, and they were equal numbers of patients in both groups, 847 in the mild hypercapnia, 853 in the normocapnia groups. And in terms of their intervention, in terms of their matching at baseline, there were very similar characteristics in both groups at hospital arrival. In terms of measuring or the target CO2 intervention, they started noticing a separation of the values between the groups at four hours, which continued through 24 hours of the intervention period. In other words, they accomplished what they were trying to do in terms of target CO2s between the two groups. Notably, the PCO2 target was abandoned in 8.2% of the mild hypercapnia group and in 3% of the normal capnia groups which are relatively small numbers. In terms of the primary outcome, which was favorable neurological outcome at six months, they were pretty much equal. The target mild hypercapnia group was 43.5% with that outcome, and the targeted normal capnia group was 44.6%. In terms of secondary outcomes, death at six months, the mild hypercapnia group was 48.2%, and the normal capnia group was 45.9%. With regard to poor functional outcome at six months, they were again very close. The mild hypercapnia group was 53.4%, and the normal capnia group was 51.3%. With regard to adverse events, there were no differences in pneumonia, arrhythmias, sepsis, bleeding, or death due to cerebral causes. So those were the results from that study. Thanks, Rob. So it, it appears that really mild hypercapnia was not better than targeting normal capnia in achieving favorable neurologic outcomes. So a little bit surprising there and counter to what those observational and less rigorous RCT had suggested, at least leading up to the TAME study. Now, Peter, let me kick things over to you. As we've always discussed when we review papers or landmark papers or practice changing papers, there are limitations to studies. And so what do we need to know about the potential limitations or maybe drawbacks to the TAME study? Now, there's a couple of pretty strong limitations identified here. One is that both the emergency department and ICU staff were not blinded to the interventions. It was kind of impossible to do that that both mechanical ventilation and the concomitant care of these critically ill patients were not specified in any protocol. Hypercapnia was really common at randomization and may have actually attenuated the difference between the two groups. The trial had only included out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and didn't include in-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Additionally, the intracranial pressure was not routinely monitored on all patients. So there were a number of patients who were monitored with elevated ICP and many who we don't know what the ICP was and don't know if cerebral edema was present or not. The data on the primary outcome was actually missing in 7.6% of the patients. So we don't have numbers for that. 
And then patients, most of those had witnessed cardiac arrest, bystander CPR, and a shockable rhythm with a large percentage of those patients having ST elevation MIs. So those were the limitations with the author conclusions, what we discussed. It's in comatose adult patients with return to spontaneous circulation out of hospital cardiac arrest targeted mild hypercapnia did not improve six-month neurological outcome compared with normocapnia. Thanks, Peter. And this is an important study. It's a negative study, but an important study. It informs us about, once again, an important aspect of care of post-arrest patients when it comes to mechanical ventilation. We've talked about oxygenation targets. We've talked about MAP targets with the BOX trial. This gives us a little bit more information on what we should potentially be targeting or should be aiming for with respect to this aspect of mechanical ventilation. Well, I want to get your opinions on this, but before we do so, perhaps we'll come back to this study in a few minutes after we review the second study. John, I'm going to ask you to take us through that second study. What are we talking about in this one? Yeah, Mike, this is another really cool study that was published just a couple of months ago now. This was the CT first cohort study, and this was from the Resuscitation Journal. This published, like I said, not too long ago by Drs. Branch and a number of other really interesting post-arrest researchers out of the University of Washington. So definitely worth a read. Now, the background of this is, I think, it's a really interesting question. So I think all of us can think back to our last cardiac arrest patient, and they get brought in by EMS, and oftentimes they come with limited history. We're really unsure about what was the cause of arrest, and it's challenging to make clinical decisions to address the primary cause of maybe why this patient had a cardiac arrest, because we can't ask the patient questions. Hopefully, there's family that were around, but sometimes these were unwitnessed arrests. And so oftentimes, we're left with ordering a number of diagnostic studies to try and differentiate or build a differential using a simple EKG, chest x-ray, blood tests. I'm probably going to get a head CT in my post-arrest patient and maybe not in the emergency department, but once they are admitted to the ICU at some point, we'll get a comprehensive echocardiogram unless I'm doing a simple point of care ultrasound to try to understand what's going on with the patient's hemodynamics. Now, Recently, the European Society of Cardiology has suggested adding on a chest CT when there isn't an obvious cause of arrest. But additional CT scans, I think, are pretty much up to the discretion of the provider. And oftentimes, it's guided by what we think might have caused the arrest itself. Now, all of us who take care of trauma patients, I think, are really familiar with this concept of a PAN scan that's been widely accepted in this patient population. And I think there's a growing body of data I think this since the early 2000s that have shown a number of clinically important injuries that have been found on these diagnostic PAN scans that we probably wouldn't have picked up just on our physical exam alone. I remember at University of Maryland, it was even given a name called the Shan scan for one of the radiologists who led this protocol at shock trauma when I was a resident. But I think all of us have some flavor of this, but we really don't have anything similar for cardiac arrest. So this group, actually, you may recognize the authors if you have read one of their other papers, this original CT first study that was published in 2021 in academic emergency medicine, where they looked at the safety and efficacy of their protocol to look for unidentified or potentially contributing 
injuries or causes of these undifferentiated out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Now, just curious, quickly, are there any other studies that you guys are routinely doing in your undifferentiated post-arrest patient, assuming it's not like a STEMI or anything? Mike, is there anything you usually add on? I think you hit the big things that we're doing. I'm aware of the literature. I don't think that I'm routinely pan scanning everybody. Certainly the head CT, looking for cerebral edema, signs that would help us maybe give some prognostication, even though we're not necessarily doing that in the ED, is fairly routine. I guess I would add on potentially echo, bedside Mm -hmm. ultrasound, looking at cardiac function, maybe looking for other etiologies, perhaps even looking for complications such as a pneumothorax that may arise from doing chest compression. So I, I think to your list there, I'd add on bedside echo, but I think you covered most of the things. Yeah. How about you, Peter? Anything else? So one of the things we look at is kind of a, a rush exam because we also look for free fluid in the abdomen to get some kind of picture of that. Maybe look at the aorta to get a glimpse of that as well to see if that's contributing to the arrest state. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important point there to think about below the diaphragm as well. Rob, any other diagnostic tests that you're considering? You know, I don't know if you're doing routine EEGs, anything like that? No, certainly not doing other diagnostic tests. And I would say that my practice has been to be, I would say, relatively selective in terms of just even the CTs, you know, the post-arrest CTs. I certainly don't routinely do an abdominal CT, and I don't always do a chest and head CT, although really kind of depends on the scenario. I certainly do do ultrasound And generally, I do a head CT. Well, that's a perfect lead-in because I think I as well fall into that camp of oftentimes doing very selective scanning. The one group that we oftentimes will do a pan scan, if you will, on our post-ECMO patients, but that's partly because we're looking for complications of initiating extracorial life support. But maybe we can start with the objective and methods of this study, the CT first cohort study. Peter, walk us through the purpose and how this study was done. Happy to. The objective here is to compare the standard of care alone, what they call the pre-cohort or SOC for standard of care cohort, to the addition of a whole body CT scan. The authors termed a sudden death CT. That's what they called it, sudden death CT, within six hours of the patient's arrival to the hospital. So let's look at the methods. There's an observational study of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with return of spontaneous circulation with ROSC that compared a historical control group called the standard of care cohort or the SOC cohort against the cohort from a previous study that was published in 2021. They have a previous study that they're comparing to in 2021 in the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. The standard of care cohort received institutional standard of care diagnostic testing. This was January 2014 to December 2015, which commonly included post-arrest EKG, post-arrest head CT, and a post-arrest echo. So the CT cohort received standard of care plus, so in addition to the standard of care, plus a head to pelvis CT scan from December 2015 to February 2018. Now, this cohort 
was from a previously published paper that was a group of 104 patient observational study that was published in Academic Emergency Medicine by the authors Branch, Strote, et al. Early head to pelvis CT in out-of-hospital circulatory arrest without an obvious etiology published in Academic Emergency Medicine 2021. Now, this previous study, what did they find? They found that early pan scan CT identified a potential cause of arrest in 39% of the idiopathic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. So a large percentage, 39%. In addition, 40% of patients were identified to have critical findings or resuscitation complications, which included, again, not a shock here, liver and spleen lacerations, pneumothoraces, and hemorrhagic complications due to the resuscitation, the CPR, presumed. The PAN-CT exclusively identified 13, which wound up being 13% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest causes that it would otherwise not be identified without this sudden death CT imaging. So an acute kidney injury was common in 28% of the patients, but only one of the patients, which turned out to be 1%, required new dialysis. So post-cardiac care protocol was the same between both groups during the four-year study period. Yeah, that's a great summary, Peter, of really what this original cohort is that they're using as the almost experimental arm in the CT first cohort study. And it was an important study. I mean, a lot of people took away from that, wow, maybe we should be thinking about pan scanning. So adding on this historical control and comparing that original group and this historical control is kind of a nice next step in terms of understanding well, how does it perform overall against a standard of care post-arrest group? So Rob, walk us through, Peter did an awesome job explaining what they did in that first study. Walk us through how they added in this historical control group and what their outcomes were. Yeah, John. So the location for both of these cohorts, they were both cared for at two academic hospitals in the Seattle, Washington area, and they included adults over 18, who had successful resuscitation from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, notably without an obvious cause of their arrest. Also, it could have undergone the sudden death CT protocol within six hours of ROSC. They excluded patients who had an obvious cause of cardiac arrest, an indication for emergent invasive coronary angiography, known obstructive coronary disease with a previous PCI stent, known defibrillator, known pre-existing DNR order, and then a relative exclusion of people with known severe renal dysfunction. This was an exclusion for the PAN-CT cohort. In terms of the sudden death CT protocol, this included three scans. It was a non-contrast head CT, a thoracic CT with an ECG-gated coronary angiogram, and a venous phase non-ECG gated abdomen and pelvis. In terms of determining the causes for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, these were adjudicated after patient discharge by two physicians who had full access to all of the medical records in those cases. With regard to the primary outcome, 
which was the diagnostic yield of the sudden death CT protocol compared to the diagnostic yield of the standard of care protocol to identify the cause of the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest event. With regard to the secondary outcomes, there were a number of these. One was time to adjudicate it cause of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The second was diagnosis of a time of critical diagnoses by the sudden death protocol CT as compared to the standard of care protocol. A third was the incidence of delayed diagnoses to time critical diagnosis, and they put a cutoff of greater than six hours being called a delayed diagnosis. And then there were some safety measurements after the sudden death protocol scan, which were AKI by 48 hours, allergic reactions to contrast, or CT complications such as extravasation, unintentional extubation, and other things that you can get when you undergo CT scanning. Yeah, that's perfect, Rob. And so my takeaway from this awesome summary was that they're looking for speed, right? They're trying to figure out how fast can we determine the cause of this patient's arrest and can we do that with this pan scan? So Mike, what did they find? All right. So overall, these investigators included 247 total patients, so roughly 250. In their standard of care cohort, 143. In their sudden death CT cohort, 104. The groups were well matched. And roughly from a demographic standpoint, about 60% of these were witnessed arrests in both groups. And the initial rhythms were also similar. So relatively well balanced between the two cohorts. There was a little difference with respect to how many in each cohort received bystander CPR. So roughly 60% in that sudden death CT cohort versus 40% in the historical control or their standard of care cohort. So that primary outcome, once again, looking with respect to the diagnostic yield of adding this sudden death CT protocol compared to standard of care. Recall standard of care was the post-arrest EKG, head CT, and bedside echo. Well, that yield, the combination of using sudden death CT in addition to standard of care, 92% of presumptive causes for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest were identified compared to just 75% of those in the standard care group alone. So a significant difference in the identification of presumptive causes. Well, what about those secondary outcomes? So not surprising and in line with that primary outcome, the sudden death CT cohort had a faster time to diagnosis, relatively significant, three hours versus 14 hours in the standard of care cohort. Not surprising, a decreased incidence to diagnosing time critical diagnoses. So adding on that CTA of the chest along with the venous phase of the abdomen really improved the speed with which they could identify time critical diagnosis at a faster rate. Having said that, looking at survival, survival ultimately was similar between the two cohorts as was the incidence of acute kidney injury. Awesome, Mike. Yeah, I think that my general takeaway is that this study in and of itself is kind of a build-up study. There wasn't a randomization here. You know, I think a number of the standard of care patients received at least one CAT scan, and certainly the clinical researchers here weren't blinded to any of the outcomes. So there's definitely a lot of limitations in this observational study, but I think the author's conclusions were that, well, hey, this sudden death CT protocol may improve the standard of care in helping clinicians identify 
potential causes or complications after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. So I think it's an interesting author conclusion. Now I'm interested to include, well, actually we can tie this in, I guess, to the last study to say, hey, these are two interesting studies. Maybe start off with Rob. What do you think? Do either of these change your practice? And if so, how so? Yeah, thanks, John. So yeah, I think these are two very, very interesting studies. And the first one that we presented, the hypercapnia study, that's a very well done study. And from inception to implementation to their presentation of their findings, it's very, very well done. They had this idea, a logical idea that perhaps hypercapnia, hypercapnia could improve perfusion of the brain post-arrest, and perhaps that could lead to better neurological outcomes. So they tested it, and they did a great job in terms of matching, in terms of the sample size, and in terms of multiple ICUs. So there's absolutely no critique of their study effort, and it's a negative study. So I guess that will not change my current practice, but it will assure me I have in the past had thoughts that maybe we should do that. And now that question has been answered pretty effectively. And I don't think you're going to get a better study or a repeat study of that question. So that study confirms my current practice. Now, the second study in resuscitation, this CT protocol study, I'd say it is likely to change my practice. As I said at the beginning, in general, I have been more selective about CT post-cardiac arrest. I routinely, in general, would do a head CT, you know, and certainly cardiac ultrasound and a chest CT, I'd say more often than not. But, you know, I never really did an abdominal CT for a full pan scan. I think I might change my practice to be open to a little bit more of CT scanning post-cardiac arrest. The thing that bothers me about this study, however, is that you're comparing cohorts to cohorts, two different studies. That's obviously not an ideal design for this type of change in practice. I imagine these are very solid knowledgeable group of investigators. I imagine they're setting up for perhaps a randomized trial. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. It feels like a little bit of a ramp up here. Peter, what about your thoughts? What are your takeaways? So I have actually strong thoughts on both studies. I think that the hypercapnia study, again, is a wrap, not something that I'm going to engage in to improve cerebral perfusion. The CT study kind of dovetails in some previous studies If you look at pan scanning patients with undifferentiated shock, finding a diagnosis with pan scanning goes up substantially. So I don't view this as dramatically different from that cohort. And I think that if you look for it, you're going to find things, whether they're sources or vascular reasons to explain the disease process. I think that's more information. I find that helpful. Nice to know that we didn't boost someone's likelihood of having to go on dialysis by doing this. So I think that more information typically is better for our patients as long as we're not creating harm. And so I'm in support of this. 
And I think that this is not different than the patient with undifferentiated shock without a clear etiology. Perfect, Peter. Mike? Not much to add on those two comments from Rob and Peter and really what you have said, John. I think we're good. I was hopeful, quite honestly, for mild hypercapnia, but I'm going to continue to target normocapnia. And I do think that for these really critically ill patients where they are labile and you know some of the sickest of the sick, having that information is critical. These weren't we pan scan and we pick up an incidentaloma that may become pertinent in six to 12 months. These are really time sensitive, critical diagnosis that in the ICU you need to know about in terms of the management. And I do feel that for many of us, we've achieved ROSC. We're targeting a lot of the things we focused on here on the podcast for a while and the optimizing post-arrest care. You get the call, you speak to the ICU and they say, can you get the scan on the way up? And I know there's a lot of sometimes eye rolling, but it actually may be value added for that patient's care. So I'm going to lean towards doing this more often. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the interesting thing about the hypercapnia study is now granted that the targets were pretty close together. So you might not have gotten that big treatment effect, but these are really large groups. So they should have found something if it existed there. I will say that instead of looking at hypercapnia as a treatment, it also makes me feel a little bit more comfortable in when I'm trying to reduce injury from other therapies, right? So lung protective ventilation, for example, and allowing a little bit of permissive hypercapnia, there maybe is some safety factor there that I'm not causing harm as I let that PCO2 come up a little bit to reduce those tidal volumes, maybe my like six cc per kilo goal. And then, yeah, the CT scan said, I think the rationale is good. And I agree, like how many times have you found like that after CPR, you've had a small liver laceration, spleen laceration, something like that. These things are not insignificant and can dramatically affect the patient's care upstairs. And while it may be infrequent, it's probably not as uncommon as we think. So it's definitely made me rethink the diagnostic studies that I'm getting at least post-arrest on the way to ICU or prior to ICU admission. All right. Excellent discussion, gentlemen. Thanks. We've got covered two key articles, important take-home points. My thanks for that very robust discussion. And thanks to all of you once again for joining us here on CCPEM for this September podcast. So much more great education to come in the next few podcasts as we round out. Hard to say, hard to believe that we're rounding out the last quarter, I guess, of 2023. But we very much look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.